Bible reading is Luke 15, 11 through 32. If you have one of the church Bibles here, it's page 962. Luke 15, 11. He also said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country, and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the carabods the pigs were eating but no one would give him any. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have more than enough food, and here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up, go to my father, and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired hands. So he got up and went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran, threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his slaves, Quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it. And let's celebrate with a feast. Because this son of mine was dead And is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. As he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he summoned one of the servants and asked what these things meant. Your brother is here, he told him. And your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. But he replied to his father, Look, I have been slaving many years for you, and I have never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Son, he said to him, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead 
and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. I want to talk to you about this. Uh, I get home from the show, and at the end of the show, as I've mentioned before, we go out and we uh, we talk to folks and you know sign an occasional autograph and shake hands and so on. And there was one guy waiting over to the side in the um, what I call the hover position after I was all done. Big guy, probably about my age. Big guy, and. Um, he had been the um, the guy who has uh, picks the joke during our psychic comedian section of the show. Uh, so we had the props from that in his hand because we give those away. He had the you know, the joke book and the and the envelope and the paper and stuff. If you haven't seen the live show, uh, it's not worth explaining. But he had props from the show that we'd given him from the night before. Uh, he wasn't the guy that night, and he walked over to me and he said. Um, I was here last night at the show, and uh, uh, I saw the show and I liked it. I wanted. And he was very complimentary about my use of language and um, complimentary about, you know, honesty and stuff. He said nice stuff. No reason to go into it. He said nice stuff. And then he said, "I brought this for you," and he handed me a uh, Gideon Pocket Edition. Um, I thought it said from the New Testament, but I also thought it was Psalms from the New Testament, right? Uh, Psalms from the New, just part of the New Testament. Little book about this big, this thick, you know. He said, I wrote in the front of it, and I wanted you to have this. I'm kind of uh, proselytizing. And then he said, I'm a businessman. I'm, I'm sane, I'm not crazy. And he looked me right in the eye and did all of this. And uh, it was really wonderful. I believe he knew that I was an atheist. But he was not uh, defensive. And he looked me right in the eyes and he was truly complimentary it wasn't in any way it didn't seem like empty flattery he was really kind and nice and sane and looked me in the eyes and talked to me and then gave me this bible and i've always said you know that i i don't respect people who don't proselytize i don't respect that at all if you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that, uh, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. And atheists who think that people shouldn't proselytize, just leave me alone, keep your religion to yourself. Uh, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that, that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. 
and I've always thought that, and I've written about that, and I've thought of it conceptually. This guy was a really good guy. He was polite and honest and sane, and he cared enough about me to proselytize and give me a, a Bible, which had written in it a little note to me, uh, not very personal, but just, you know, liked your show and so on. And then like five phone numbers for him and an email address if I wanted to get in touch. Now, I know there's no God, and one polite person living his life right doesn't change that. Uh, but I'll tell you, he was a very, very, very good man. And uh, that's really important. And with that kind of goodness, uh, it's okay to have that deep of a disagreement. I still think that religion does a lot of bad stuff, but man, that was a good man who gave me that book. That's all I wanted to say. Good evening, everyone. Uh, pretty incredible, isn't it? We've had Christians up here um, sharing their testimony, so I thought it'd be good to get an atheist up on the screen to share their testimony of someone sharing the gospel with them. Uh, why don't we pray before we get stuck up into this great parable? Father, we praise you for the boldness of that guy to share Jesus uh, with Penn Gillett. We pray that Penn would come to know the joy of Jesus, of knowing Jesus and sin forgiven. Father, as we come to your word, we pray that you would make us like Jesus. Shape us to love like our Savior and have the heart of our King. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, we are in uh, week two of a three-week series on sharing our faith. And if you were with us last week, Jesus challenged our relational comfort as we looked at what it means to be missionaries in the workplace. Well, this week, Jesus challenges our joy as we focus on sharing Jesus with our friends and family, those really difficult people, aren't they? Really difficult people. I guess the difference between sharing Jesus with our work colleagues and sharing Jesus with our unbelieving friends is that there is so much more at stake, isn't there? You see, they, they mean so much more to us. They know us. They know what makes us happy. They know what gets really on our nerves. They see us at our best, and they see us at our worst. So when it comes to sharing Jesus uh, with someone that we really love, there is a lot to lose relationally, isn't there? I said it last week and I'll say it again this week. Uh, my goal is not to send us on a guilt trip. We've all been in those sermons where the preacher sends us on a guilt trip. Um, my goal is to take us on a road trip as Jesus travels in this section of Luke's gospel from Galilee to Jerusalem to his death, resurrection and ascension. That's the agenda as Luke mentions these explicit mentions of Jerusalem. As Jesus heads towards Jerusalem, executing God's plan to restore us to a right relationship with our Creator. And as he travels, he meets uh, these various people. And these various people show us what it means to follow Jesus. That's our agenda, to know what it means to follow Jesus and how that will, should impact how we talk about Jesus. 
Well, tonight, Jesus speaks to some of the grumpiest people in the Bible. Really grumpy. Have a look with me at Luke chapter 15 and verses 1 and 2. If you've closed your Bibles, it's on page 962. Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. All the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to Jesus. And the Pharisees and scribes were complaining. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. The Pharisees and scribes, they were complaining, Luke says. Now, despite rumors, these guys aren't poms. They're not English, but they are whinging. But as we see these guys whinging, we need to remember that the Pharisees weren't the villains in Luke's gospel. You often read your Bible and the Pharisees come on stage and you go, boo, hiss, uh, get off. But the Pharisees, we need to remember this, that the Pharisees are the nice people. They're the religious, the kind, the do-gooders. The first century um, Jewish historian Josephus said that the Pharisees are an affectionate bunch to each other and cultivate harmonious relations with the community. You see, they're the charity workers, the nice people, the people that do good works. But here, they're grumpy and they're complaining, not because they hated God. They knew their Bibles. They knew that they had to love their neighbor and all that. But they wanted to be in the God club, not on God's terms, but on their own membership terms. See, their, their view of Jesus didn't match God's view. Of, uh, their view of uh, neighbor didn't match God's view of neighbor. Their prediction on how God was going to rescue his people didn't match their predictions. They thought it was all about keeping rules. And the way they wanted to live under God didn't match God's way. So they whinged and they hated what Jesus was up to, hanging out with the scum and telling the Pharisees that their obedience to the law, their religion, was all a waste of time. And so they plotted to assassinate Jesus. That's what we get through Luke's gospel. Now, I've been challenged this week by reading Luke's gospel. When it comes to sharing, with, sharing Jesus with other people, with our loved ones, well, there's more Pharisee in us than we ever thought or would ever like. I'm not suggesting that we'd be part of a first century death squad to take Jesus out of the picture. But there is Pharisee in there. See, uh, our lack of enthusiasm to share Jesus shows it. Our deficiency of joy at seeing the lost saved, that shows it. See, it doesn't, doesn't float our boat, doesn't it, telling people about Jesus? Uh, the way other things do, like Facebook and going to the shops. And, and we become kind of numb to sharing Jesus with people, don't we? Or perhaps our willingness to be charitable but not missional. That shows us uh, the Pharisee in us, doesn't it? We like our friends to think of us as kind. We're very happy to do good things for them. We're very happy to sponsor a child on the internet. But when it comes to sharing Jesus with the people we love the most, well, we'd much rather be known as the kind person than the God-botherer. We're comfortable in the Jesus Club. We have our Christian friends here. And we have all of our other friends here. And the two don't, just, don't mix. Those guys won't get on. Well, why would they want to meet them? That's where we see the Pharisee. 
I see it in myself, and I wonder whether you see it in yourself. Thankfully, the Bible is a bit like that honest friend who tells you how it is, even when the truth hurts. You know, like the friend who, when you say to them, does my bum look big in this? And they say to you, no, that's your poor diet and lack of exercise. They tell you exactly how it is, and the Bible is like that. The parable of the prodigal son, it's a familiar story. I'm sure we all know it here. But we often miss the point of why Jesus is telling us. We need to remember it's a parable. It didn't actually happen. But Jesus is telling uh, telling us this parable. He's telling the grumpy Pharisees this parable to invoke joy, to make them happy. Someone sent around a survey this week, and apparently... Uh, A third on the list of things that make you most happy in Sydney is living close to your work. And then fourth is having good friends. Dan should be the happiest man in the building. (laughs) But Jesus doesn't put us near our work. He tells us this parable to fill us with joy. Joy at the gospel, joy at following Jesus, and joy at seeing people come to know Jesus. And I reckon we could all do with a bit of that, couldn't we? Well, uh, three points this evening to refocus our eyes on Jesus and to rededicate uh, our priorities to sharing Jesus with people. Three points tonight. Firstly, we're to see the extravagance of the gospel, the extravagance of the gospel. Pick up the story with me uh, at verse 11. He He also said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate. I have have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. Now to understand the extravagance of the gospel, we need to see just how far the younger son falls. Uh, One Bible geek that I read, he went round uh, small uh, Middle Eastern communities and asked, uh, has this ever happened in your community? Has anyone ever asked for uh, their inheritance before the father has died? And the response is, no, that's never happened Because his father would beat the son. That's why it's never happened. You see, the request that we've got here is tantamount to hiring a hitman to get your inheritance. It's one massive breakup with dad. Well, not only does he break things off with dad, he breaks things off with his other brother. And he breaks things off with the village as he shafts the local economy and the biggest employer in the region. He ditches Judaism for Vegas, and he, uh, he weighs the money up the wall, verse 13. By verse 14, he has hit rock bottom. A severe famine hits, and he has nothing. Now, this phrase in uh, verse 15, he went to work for one of the citizens of that country. It literally, literally means, in the Greek, he glued himself to someone from another country. Now, if you're a Jew, that's a big deal. He is tied there, addicted to someone else. Like the ice addict, addict, addicted, trapped into begging and stealing. So this son falls into an existence of feeding pigs to survive. That's a big deal if you're a Jew. He's starving, verse 16. And all he can do is fantasize about the food that the pigs are eating. Imagine being so low that all you could think about 
was eating a can of dog food. Can you imagine that? He's hit rock bottom and he's still falling. Jesus wants us to know how far he's fallen and he wants us to know how stupid the, the, how stupid the son is. You know, like one of those backpackers you see on the news who have ended up in a Thai prison because somebody has said to them, hey, can you carry this to Sydney? He's gullible and he is stupid and he is beyond a joke. Now, it's against this backdrop that we see just how good the father is. You know the story, he wakes up, he smells the bacon, verse 17, and he plans to return to dad. Not as as a son, but as the lowest grade employee there is. See, there's three grades of uh, servant, and he goes in at the lowest grade, like Paris Hilton scrubbing the hotel toilets. Verse 18, he practices his grovel speech. He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired hands. He says what we've all been thinking. He's a loser and he deserves to learn a lesson. But the father teaches him this amazing lesson, a lesson that he never expected to learn. Verse 20, while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran through his arms around his neck and kissed him. Now, if you ignore the violins that are playing in your head, there's a couple of little details that we need to pick up. First, first century Jewish men didn't, didn't run. That was the equivalent of a lawyer wearing Ugg boots to work. It just wasn't dignified. Secondly, the father hugs the son as he's far away, and he saves him from the shame of walking through the village, getting abuse held at him. I ran away once when I was a kid uh, with my brother for half a day on roller skates and we got hit with shoes from my nan. We got hit with shoes, it really hurt and and my brother likes to remind me of it. Uh, But in this parable, there's no shoe hitting. There's no shoe hitting. He throws his arms around him and kisses him, verse 20. It's incredible, isn't it? It's incredible. And it's made more incredible by the royal treatment that he gets in verse 22. He gets his uh, ring, he gets the best robes, he gets sandals, which I presume are posh uh, and expensive. Uh, And the dad throws the party of the century for him. He kills the fattened calf. Kills the fattened calf. Hope he's not vegetarian. He kills the fattened calf, and it's the equivalent of a swimming pool full of champagne and a mountain of caviar. You read this, and you can't but notice what incredible forgiveness this is. It's the son who wanted his father dead so he could take the cash. And he is offered this extravagant level of forgiveness. It's a display of undeserved undignified, unfailing love. Incredible forgiveness, isn't it? Man says, verse 24, this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Joy just oozes off the page, doesn't it? Just oozes off the page. And it's in the Bible to show us how incredible God's offer of forgiveness is for each and every one of us. 
to show us just how much God did by letting Jesus go to Jerusalem and to the cross. What lengths he went to to welcome us home, forgiven full members of his family. See, we, we're all like the son. We're all like the, that son once. At rock bottom, dead, lost, eating with the pigs. But when we trust the cross of Jesus, we receive this most extravagant forgiveness. It doesn't matter what we've done. It doesn't matter where we've been or how far we've fallen. God welcomes us back with this huge party. And the cross makes the party in our story look like an RSL finger buffet. Now, you might be here tonight and you are not a Christian. You wouldn't call yourself a Christian or secretly deep down you know you're not a Christian. Have a look at this story and see what God offers. See what's on the table. It's astonishing forgiveness. Astonishing forgiveness. Come and chat with me afterwards if that's you. But for the rest of us, seeking to share our faith with the people that we love the most, our friends and our family, we need to grasp the extravagance of God's forgiveness first. I've got a uh, friend who I knew in London. He's, um, he became a Christian from a Nigerian Muslim family. Uh, he, he lived in London, uh, but his family lived in Nigeria. And his dad was kind of a, a high-up uh, Muslim in the country. Uh, it's a pretty dangerous situation to be in. It took him six years to tell his father that he'd started to follow Jesus. When his father found out, he kicked his mother out of the house because she knew a few months before. And he took my friend to an Islam boot camp in Saudi Arabia to bring him to his senses and to remind him uh, what Islam did for him. See, my friend knew this extravagant forgiveness. And when his dad sat him down uh, and they talked about uh, the, the boot camp that he'd been on, he said, Dad, I believed Islam for the first 18 years of my life. He wasn't just a rich, he wasn't just, isn't, it wasn't just into uh, the religion of it. He goes, I believed Islam. But he said, it does not offer me the forgiveness that Jesus does. He said, Dad, if I die tonight, I know that my sin is forgiven. And you will know that I am in heaven with my father. He said this knowing that there was a good chance of his dad killing him. But he knew the extravagant forgiveness that God offers. We probably won't face that kind of treatment for sharing Jesus. We might well do, but most likely not. But we will face the cold shoulder, won't we? Uh, we'll face the unfriend on Facebook. Uh, we'll face that uh, relational distance from our family. That's just as painful. It's just as hard to face. But if we grasp the extravagance of the gospel, the, 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 the lengths at which God has gone to to forgive us and what he's done to bring us back to himself. Well, those things don't really matter, do they? Because we won't shut up about it. Not in a, a, a preachy way. We'll, we want to share this forgiveness. Not in a weird 
kind of God-bothering way, but sharing it naturally in conversation as we talk about uh, what we do with our lives with our friends. Uh, my wife is excellent at doing this. If ever you get a chance to tag along with her uh, to, uh, with um, a coffee with her mum, watch her. She's excellent at doing this, sharing uh, with her dear friends and her family uh, just how much she trusts Jesus, telling them what Jesus has done for her and how it has shaped her life. It's brilliant. It's not in a weird way. It's not in a God-bothering way. It's just her sharing the extravagant forgiveness that she has found in Jesus. Uh, So often we think uh, the people we love wouldn't be interested in Jesus, don't we? We think they've got so much. They've got their houses. They've got their iPads. What would they want to do with Jesus? Well, friends, we follow and hold out a man who rose from the dead. We offer a friendship with the creator of the universe. And Apple can't make that in California. It's incredible. It's extravagant. It's undignified. And it's a a magnificent display of love. It's not rubbish. It's not cuckoo talk. It's amazing. It's so amazing, in fact, that it's offensive. And that's the next point to help us in our joy, that the gospel is offensive. We need to know the offense of the gospel. You see, uh, not everyone in the story is having a great time. Have a look with me at verse 25. Now, his oldest son was in the field. As he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. He'd clearly not been invited to the party, had he? We can feel the pain. Well, I can feel the pain. I never get invited to parties. He's He's out in the field slogging his guts out probably to pay off the refinance that the father has taken out on the farm. And he hears that they're partying. He hears the the, the voices and the dancing, and he hits the roof. Verse 29, I've been slaving away all of these years. I've done everything you've asked, and you've never even given me so much as a Chico roll. But when this son of yours... You can't even call him his brother. When he comes, having spent your money, our business money, on prostitutes, you crack open the bubbly. Pretty angry, isn't he? Pretty angry. And you can feel the injustice. You know how you would feel if it was you. He's worked hard. Uh, His father owes him. How dare you throw all this cash at this delinquent? But Jesus doesn't tell this parable so that we would feel sorry uh, for the brother. He tells us this parable. He tells us about him so that we would not be like him. We can easily become the bitter older son, the grumpy party pooper. We can easily become that person, can't we? Have you seen uh, that website, Celebrity Makeunders? It's a a website where they take uh, photographs of celebrities and they show you what it would be like if they were normal people. So you get Brad and Angelina in their velour tracksuits and you get P. Diddy uh, weighing 130 kilos wearing a singlet. Some pretty scary pictures on there. But this, uh, the picture that is painted of the older brother in this story, is deliberately scary 
so that we would not become like him. See, we can easily develop this attitude, can't we, when it comes to uh, sharing our faith. Uh, we can easily develop this attitude that, that we've kind of somehow done our time on the front lines, uh, that God owes us, that, we've, uh, that we were on fire at university, uh, you were on the walk-up evangelism team, uh, you'd been overseas on a short-term mission, you've got one of those Greek tattoos, you know those things that the keen Christians have got? You wouldn't shut up about Jesus in your 20s. But now you've become like the retired rugby player. You've become like the tired rugby player. You've hung up your boots. And all you can do is remember the glory days. You've done your time with God and he owes you. And so you can just settle back down into the Jesus Club with your nice comfortable life. And your nice routine. Because the joy you once knew, the the joy you you once knew when you first heard the gospel, that's long gone. The passion you had for seeing the lost saved, well, that died with your 20s. It's not that you don't want to see your friends come to know Jesus. It's not that you don't want your family to come to the party. It's just that you don't invite them. You don't tell them about Jesus because uh, you like your friends and and they're part of your life and you don't want to lose them. We so easily become the grumpy party pooper and we become happy with being grumpy. I was really shocked at how um, much this parable places us in front of the spiritual mirror. It's not that we're like this son and we become angry at people uh, becoming Christians. It's just, uh, it's just that we become lukewarm, don't we? So easily. The parable forces us to examine ourselves and to ask, what's my attitude to the lost? Why am I not inviting people to hear the gospel? I'm not doing that to make us feel guilty. I'm doing it because that's what the parable forces us to do, to examine ourselves and say, how much like the older brother are we? A friend of mine was, um, friend of mine was convicted of this, and he said to me, um, Andy, I'm not sure whether it's... Um, I'm, uh, he was convicted of his lack of enthusiasm. And he said, Andy, I can't work out whether I don't love my mates enough or whether I don't believe the gospel. It's pretty much what Penn said on the video, isn't it? See, the irony of this parable is that the older brother was lost too. He's completely lost. And we need to make sure that we are not lost. Because there is a real danger in this passage that we have not understood the gospel properly. That we have not grasped how extravagant the forgiveness that God offers is. It's not only a party for rebellious Uh, younger brothers, it's also a party and an invite to bring older brothers back to the party. That's the final point this evening, Uh, the call of the gospel, the call of the gospel. Just have a look at the father again with me Uh, and, and look at his heart. Verse 31, he said, son, he said to him, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. 
But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. See, here we see a clear picture of the God of the Bible. We see the Father's heart. It's amazing, isn't it? We didn't deserve it, but the Father invited us in anyway. And that's what he's up to in the world. We get um, some pretty ordinary invitations, don't we, Um, from time to time to pretty ordinary parties. The wedding of the people that you can't really remember who they are or, or the Facebook invite for some random thing. But the invite that God makes to the older, that the father makes to the older brother is an incredible invite from an incredible heart. See, the God, uh, the God that we know, the God that we trust, he loves the lost. And he sacrificed his son to win uh, the lost back to himself. And he seeks the lost out, just like the father does. I think we very uh, easily think that uh, because our friends and family are so nice, that we love them so much, that God will see what we see. Uh, The generous mum and dad, or our, our faithful friend, or the pal who always picks us up when we're down. The Bible says we're all in the same place. We're out in the field eating with the pigs. We are lost. We are dead. And there is no way back except for the cross. We love our friends. We love our family. And it clouds the true state, our true state before God. Friends, we need to know what the Father's mission is. We need to remember uh, what, the, what the Father's heart looks like so that we may see our friends and our family in, in the true state that they are, that we might adopt the same heart that the Father has. God's heart for the lost uh, it, it shows us that there is no better way to share someone uh, to show someone you love them. Uh, we do many things, don't we? Uh, many uh, different things to show people that we love them. But this parable shows us that there is no greater way to show someone that we love them than sharing with them the best invite the world has ever seen, the gospel of Jesus. You were once dead, but now you are alive again. You are lost, but now you are found, God says to you. There can be no greater joy than seeing those we love come to know the Lord and no better way to spend the rest of our lives. Let's, uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your extravagant forgiveness. It blows our minds when we think about what you've done for us on the cross. Please would you fill us with joy. Please would you spur us on to hold out the gospel in boldness. You know who we long to see come to know you. And we pray you would equip us and enable us to share this great invite 
of Jesus, of forgiveness, and sins done away with, so that we might see them on the last day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.